All right now, you're listening to the Real Texas Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Bronin, just a fed up taxpayer bringing you all of your Texas local and national news. Welcome to the Real Texas Radio Podcast. I am Bronin, your host. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Or if you're joining the program for the first time, 1,000 welcomes. Please be sure to like, subscribe, follow on whatever platform that you are tuning in from. You can also catch me on Twitter at RTR underscore Bronin. Today on the show, I want to talk about the special session that Greg Abbott is calling this week for his school choice or school voucher program. And school vouchers, they have been discussed, I'd say probably in the last 15 years in education. And essentially, if you're not familiar with what a voucher is, it's essentially a an amount of money, a certain amount of money. And it, typically, it's a it's an amount that is less than what the state spends on a child to be in the public education system, or what the state would pay for the child to be in a charter school. So, for example, I think that Greg Abbott is looking for a voucher that's around eight thousand dollars, give or take maybe a thousand bucks. Now, if you look at the tuition at the private schools, the private K through 12 schools, where in theory, an ordinary Texas parent would be able to send their child rather than the local public or independent school or the charter school that's probably broken and terrible. So the parent would take that $8,000 if they choose, and they would be able to apply it toward a private school education. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is $8,000 isn't going to fully cover the costs of that private school education, $8,000 per year or whatever it is. And who knows, maybe it will be adjusted every year, every few years to mitigate what is sure to be the rising costs at any of these schools. And do you know what this really sounds like to me? Well, I've got a lot of thoughts on the voucher program. As you know, I was a public school teacher in two different states in in one pretty tough district under resource district, Jackson, Mississippi, for three years. And I taught in Dallas for four years in an independent school district. So there are a number of problems the way that I see it with these voucher programs. So first, it doesn't fully cover the cost. So who does that really benefit? If you are poor, or if you're working class, and you think that you want to take advantage of a voucher. So let's say that you get the 8000 bucks for your kid, but the school costs 12000 Okay, well, you might think to yourself, well, I can close that gap as a parent, I can use my income, and I can close that gap. But 
do you know who these voucher programs are really going to support? It's the people who they can already afford the private school. They're already sending their kids to the private school. They want to live in Houston proper or Dallas proper or Austin proper, but they don't want to send their rich kids into the independent school districts or the charter schools with the unwashed masses. So they're already sending their children to the private schools with the uniforms or the religious schools, right? Uh, they're sending their students to be with students just like them, basically preparing them to go to their expensive private college. And so all this is going to do is significantly discount the private school education for the wealthy or the upper middle class. So do you know what? Look into the Ken Paxton trial, right? Now, I don't know a whole lot about all the people there, but they're all rich white lawyers. Basically, everybody who participated in that was a, either a politician or a wealthy white attorney. And presumably, all of their children, they're going to private school. These lawmakers, right, who are, are going to be asked to pass this law. Now, the governor, Greg Abbott, he tried to get the voucher program through in the regular session, and it didn't work out. And he tried to get it through before getting the homestead exemption raised to $100,000, which that has a, a lot more logic behind it, in my opinion. Somebody who doesn't have children, by the way. So I, I would say that's my first big beef, is this, it, this looks like a bailout for the wealthy class, for the political class. That's what the voucher program looks like to me. The next problem, which I touched on a little bit, is don't we already have an enormous student loan debt crisis in the country? And the reason why we have the student loan debt crisis is because colleges know that ultimately the federal government is always going to bail out these students, is always going to provide these loans for their students, even if they're in a degree path that has little chance of being able to pay it off or, or pay it off within a reasonable time frame. So what is different? What, what do you think is going to be different now? Aren't we just basically enabling K through 12 private education to do exactly what their higher ed peers have been doing for decades? So how quickly is it going to be that a, a twelve or $15,000 per year private education is going to get to $30,000? And do you know what? I, I'm going to be honest. I didn't, even, I didn't look up the, uh, the figures on how much a, a private school costs in Texas. I didn't look up for a year. I know in, I come from Massachusetts, and the New England area is famous or infamous or notorious, whatever you want to use, whatever word for having these tawny private schools that in boarding schools and boys prep schools and girls schools. And when I was a kid and a lot of my peers were getting ready to transition into some of these institutions, I, you know, this is 20 years ago or more, they were going for 10 grand a year. Then I, I think some of them are already up well over 30,000, $40,000 in, in the new England area. So I think the South they they would be cheaper now, but they're, they will quickly catch up and it will become this it just out of control 
system or all of these dollars will just be pulled out of the public schools, right? They already try to do a pilot program basically with the charters. And obviously that is expanded. So that way the charter schools now are quite mainstream. And most of them are very mediocre. Many of them underperform the public schools. What happened was somebody comes along with a great idea. There's some star, gets together awesome teachers. They open up a charter school, but then all of a sudden, now they want to turn it into a network. Now they want to cross state lines. Now they want to open up nationwide. And you just can't replicate that kind of success in the education world, which is so localized, which is so specialized, which is so unique, depending on where you go in the country. Now, that said, there there is a case to be made, right? So just say, what if you are a working or middle class person and $15,000 is out of the question for you to send your kid to a private school and maybe the options aren't great for you in your neighborhood in terms of public or charter schools, right? We, we see the horror stories. We see the videos all over the internet of kids being outrageous, getting physical with the teacher, uh, beating each other up. We know that there is there is no reading going on in schools, in, in public schools. No public school that I have ever been in at, as an educator is there real reading going on. There's reading theater. There's lots of theater, but there's no real reading. There are a ton of kids who are in the school and it's not working for them, the traditional model. Putting a kid in a building for eight hours a day and expecting them to sit for 90 minutes in a math class and then go sit for 90 minutes in a biology class and then go sit for 90 minutes in a writing class and then go sit for 90 minutes in a history class and and get basically a 15 or 20 minute lunch break by the time they uh, chase each other down the hallway and try to get a line into the into the line to get their food and sit down. They've got 10 or 15 minutes, basically, and that's it. And there's no other breaks. And it's just an old model situation. And I know that there are all kinds of trends and movements to create a circus in your classroom, a well-organized circus if you're a teacher, where you have the kids up and doing cartwheels and moving around and they're doing stations and they're in small groups and they're talking to each other and and all of these techniques, the the brilliant administrators and policymakers want teachers to apply where they have 25 different IQ levels in the room and they have all these special ed kids and all these differently able kids and all these different languages. And this one teacher is supposed to have a well-organized circus in the classroom to keep the kids entertained and excited for the whole 90 minutes. Meanwhile, there's still 30 desks and chairs in the room. So that model, that doesn't work for plenty of kids. And so the kids are, some of them, there's a ton of kids in the schools that they're just totally outrageous. They can't read. They can't do any math. They can't look at the board or the screen or whatever they've got now and follow along with the class. They're way behind. I, I, do I need to even go further? If you can't read, then what can you do? If, if you can't read anything, then how can you do eight hours of school a day? Does that make any sense? So no, they're a nightmare. So in many cases, the traditional public school model, it is broken. And 
you know, I have a good friend. We actually taught together in the same school. We had the same kids for, for a few years and he's now an administrator and he taught for 10 years. Now he's an administrator. And you know what? We were speaking recently and he mentioned that he, he does have a lot of parent meetings. He's involved in a lot of the discipline at the campus. He's in a middle school and he is looking at these parents sometimes and interacting with these parents. And he gets the impression that they are totally unqualified to be parents. They are afraid to take the phone away from the kid. They're afraid to do any kind of discipline around the phone. Cause let's be honest, the phone is a huge problem. The United Kingdom, England and Scotland, they're getting ready to ban the cell phone in the classroom. It's such a nightmare. It is such a headache. It has been a major contributor to all of the failures and to it's a major contributor to why kids don't read anymore. Kids don't know how to read anymore. Kids don't have any interest in reading anything, anything that is of length, anything of depth. They can't even connect to it. And the parents are looking at my friend here, the assistant principal, and they're they're looking at the school to step in and be the surrogate parent and, and thinking that it should be the school who is completely developing the child rather than the parent. And you know what? I, I've, I know all of the reasons or all of the excuses. The parents work in two jobs. The parents taking care of their own parent. The, the parents falling on hard times. The cars in the shop all the time. They're making a low wage. The parent doesn't speak English. The parent's an immigrant. The parent is... It, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And if you don't take that kind of thinking by the spoonful and shove it in your throat, then you're a racist and a bigot and you don't have any empathy. Do you know what? There was a time not too long ago, back in the, certainly the Great Depression, maybe even later, where obviously there were wealth disparities, but they're worse than ever now, right? Don't we hear that all the time? The income inequality, it's never been worse. It is only getting worse. And it doesn't seem like there's much being done about that. Well, let's think back to a time when there wasn't such great income disparity and people were much more evenly dispersed and, and really along the working class or certainly the, the poor, the more modest class, right? regardless of race. And obviously there, I'm, I'm not saying that there were no disparities among the, the races in the early 20th century. I'm not making that case or immigrants or I, I'm well aware of that, but bear with me here, right? Everybody lived a much more similar existence, right? You had one bathroom, you had one or zero cars in the driveway. You didn't have multiple properties. You you may have had one house. You may have rented. You, the people who were living in the house were sharing a bedroom. There were multiple people, more than two, sharing a bedroom, right? Would you agree that regardless of your race or immigrant status, that in 1940, 1950, 1960, that it was much more likely that that was the case for you, regardless of your race or ethnic background? It, more likely that there was one parent staying at home 
taking care of the children or, or maybe had a little side work, but was maybe the the brunt of that responsibility. How many people now farm their parental responsibilities out to the daycare because both parents are working outside of the home? How common is that versus how common was that 70 years ago? Do you see where I'm going with this? So my point is, I think there was a lot more real parenting going on than is the case now. That's my point. And you know what? The parenting is a really critical piece of having a functioning school. If there's no parenting going on, or there's limited parenting going on, most kids don't have a parent who's actually being a parent and a disciplinarian, and God forbid teaching them something, God forbid getting the book out. You can't read a book to your three-year-old. Do you know that if every parent did that, if every parent read a story to their kid at night, and it doesn't matter what language it's in, by the way, whether it's Chinese or Spanish or Haitian Creole or Portuguese, doesn't matter what language it's in, because if you're still creating those same brain connections, you're still creating that development in the child's mind. But that's not going on in most homes, let's face it. Or what about getting a math workbook out? You know, my mother, who didn't go to college, by the way, she did that with us. She was a stay-at-home parent. And she read to us. She made sure we could read. She would get out math workbooks, little basic little math. And so, you know, we could show up to the school and we all knew what day of the week it was and right from left and, and we knew uh, colors and uh, days of the week and things like that. A lot of kids show up and they have no clue. Well, it, you go into first grade and you don't know right from left or, your, you know, the days of the month or in the months in the year. You don't know stuff like that. Once you hit third grade, it is really, really, really difficult to catch up. If you go into third grade and you can't read, then all you are, you're just, you're an anvil in the sand getting dragged, getting dragged by the system. And I'm not saying that if you're 15 and can't read, that it means that you're never going to be able to read and you're never going to find success. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm going to, I will go ahead and say that people who do reach that success if you are 15 and you can't read that you are you're a statistic you are malcolm x he couldn't read until he went to jail malcolm by the way i went to high school on malcolm x boulevard in the neighborhood where malcolm x grew up he wasn't born in boston i'm not sure where he was born maybe missouri i'm not certain but he grew up in boston he, he spent his formative years there and he went to jail in boston and he, if, if you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, when he's in jail, he gets the dictionary out and he starts teaching himself to read and he educates himself. He was a self-taught man. And obviously he went on to a great fame or notoriety, whatever you want to say about him. But is it fair to say that most people don't, that most 15-year-olds or 16-year-olds, if they end up in jail, they can't read, they're failing out of school, that you're not going to turn it around. And I stopped teaching the year before of the COVID hoax, nonsense, farce, scam. And obviously that just exacerbated everything. That just made school even worse. It made the kids even more feral. So the school in its current structure all over the country, it is broken. It is a broken system by and large. It is 
is not working and it needs a huge overhaul. And so going back to these vouchers, I really just see this as a bailout for those who can already afford to keep their kids out of the mess, out of the disaster, out of the bedlam that is the public schools. But where does that leave the rest of the society for whom this voucher is not really intended, in my opinion? All right, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I will be following the outcome and what's going on in the legislature regarding the vouchers. I'm definitely curious about it. It is definitely going to have consequences for everybody, every single Texas taxpayer, whether or not you have children. So keep tuning into the Real Texas Radio podcast for updates. You can follow the updates on Twitter as well, RTR underscore Bronin. Make sure you like, follow, subscribe, and tune into the next episode of the Real Texas Radio podcast.